Good morning. We're in Zechariah chapter 9, and if you don't know where that is, I don't blame you. It's not often preached about. It is on page 748 in your church Bible, and I'll give you a moment to turn there. It is near the end of the Old Testament. God's kingdom is built on the blood of Jesus. He was and and he is the king that God appointed long ago to build his kingdom. And today being Palm Sunday, we're going to take a look at the appointment of Jesus coming through the words of this prophet named Zechariah. He wrote of it 500 years before it happened. Now, though this prophecy didn't specifically name Jesus, it showed its readers exactly how you would identify him, and I think how to identify those who follow him. Here's how you could identify him according to the passage we're going to look at today. First, he would come in peace. Second, his rule would extend over all nations. And third, most surprisingly, is he would accomplish this by emptying himself. Now, this was written at a time in history when Israel seemed to need a dominant king. They had just returned from exile in Babylon, and uh, they were probably wondering, when would this king come? What would he do? Well, we're going to look at what Zechariah wrote, and then we'll fast forward to the book of Matthew, which quotes this passage in Zechariah, and is the Palm Sunday account. And we're going to take all that, we're going to see... Does Jesus really look like that? And then we're going to see if we do too. So this text from Zechariah is only three verses because there's a lot of context. So let's start in verse 9, which Peter read as we uh, gathered to worship. Here's Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on, the, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the first thing Zechariah is telling Israel to look out for in this coming king is to watch for peace. He will come in that way. Now, I know you might not have seen the actual word peace in there, but the evidence is everywhere. Let me explain some of the key words in this verse. First, the word righteousness. He's coming and having righteousness. What does righteousness actually mean? Some of you have been coming to church your whole life. You know, right? It's, it's actually kind of a word sometimes we just chuck around. And maybe we forget what it, what it actually means or even where it comes from. So we might like to simply say goodness or really goodness. Well, that's kind of true, but... Where does goodness come from? Well, it comes from God who gave his law to Israel way back in the book of Deuteronomy, written much earlier. I'm going to read um, two verses from the account of Deuteronomy that help us understand righteousness a little bit so that we understand this king more. First, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, Moses says this to Israel, And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous 
as all this law that I set before you today. So, to know what righteousness is, Zechariah is saying that we, we look to God's law, and this king is going to be in alignment with that, because God alone is righteous. So this king is very much going to come aligned with Israel's law. And then, a few chapters later in Deuteronomy 6.25, Moses continues and says, And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. So, so here's, here's all I'm saying. To see what righteousness is, Israel, you look to God's law. Because God's law is written by God who is righteous. But to be righteous, you actually have to follow it. So in short, this coming king is going to do that, apparently. He will be very much aligned with God. But the effect of this isn't just a lawful king. Because you might think, well, that's great. But this is a king who also has salvation. It's a little bit easier to understand. He's going to be one who saves his people. That's the second word in Zechariah 9.9. This king is going to have salvation. Saved from what? (laughs) Well, there's a lot to unpack there, and it's actually kind of the big thrust of the sermon. But there's a clue hanging out as we're still here in Zechariah 9.9, and it's this picture. And it's one that if you're familiar with the Palm Sunday account, you might know. And this is a picture of a king humbly riding on a donkey. That was a picture of salvation because riding on a donkey was a sign of wartime peace. The most famous biblical example so far was, again, in the Old Testament when Jesus' ancestor, Solomon, the son of David, was recognized as Israel's king in 1 Kings 133. He came in on a donkey. It was kind of like his big ceremony. But here's a huge contrast. Back there in in 1 Kings, when Solomon rode in on a donkey, Israel had peace. They were doing pretty well. How's Israel doing at the time of Zechariah's writing? Well, hundreds of years later, at the time of this writing, they have just returned from exile. They are not nearly as prosperous as they were. They don't have kings or priests that I know of. So how do you think they're going to take these words from Zechariah 9, chapter 9, verse 9? How do you think they're going to interpret them? This king is coming, and he has peace and salvation, and he's righteous. And Well, if I were an Israelite, I'd probably think this peace is going to come after another great military victory. We're going to make a comeback, and we're going to be bigger than we ever were. That seems to be where Zechariah might be going. But let's keep our ears up as I read verse 10, because it starts to divert from what you might think there. Verse 10 of Zechariah chapter 9, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, And the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea 
and from the river to the ends of the earth. So the second thing Zechariah is telling Israel to anticipate in this coming king is a global kingdom. All nations. You can only imagine God's people reading this fresh from exile and expecting a bright future. I mean, first, we get a picture of Israel so victorious that they get rid of their weapons. First, with the phrase, Ephraim cuts off their chariots. Just a little history there. Um, Ephraim was one of the tribes of Israel named after Ephraim, who was one of the sons of Joseph. And God actually gifted this tribe specifically as, as warriors and valiant fighters in a book called First Chronicles 12. I mean, even the name Ephraim means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. How are you going to be spinning your wheels on that when you hear that phrase? Well, for now, back to Zechariah, who continues to build the imagery as verse 10 continues. The war horse and the battle bow are cut off. I mean... If you were the original audience, here's how you might be interpreting this. Imagine the most powerful army you can think of, and now imagine them retiring because there aren't any wars left to fight. Does that sound like good news to you? Yeah. So what's the result? Well, it would seem peace. The same peace we read about in verse 9, but... Now we're talking global peace. In fact, at the end of verse 10, it says this, peace to the ends of the earth. You can imagine the excitement of Israel reading this. We're not only going to make a comeback and we're going to grow, but we're going to grow until there's nothing left to build. It seems like that's what's happening here. But I don't think the peace that we're talking about that Zechariah is prophesying is going to involve the military sword. Verse 11, I think, is going to explain that. But before we even go there, I want to take you back a little farther in Zechariah to one of his earlier writings. Back in chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, you can write that down. Zechariah says this, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I'm going to dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. So how does that maybe color things as we're thinking about how this peace is going to come globally? Well, it shows us, I think, a much more significant peaceful resolution than simply nation and nation. Looks like God's going to have peace with his people and with the world. But wait a second. We're talking about Israel here, who just got back from Babylon. Does that mean they paid their penance? Or, I mean, Israel doesn't seem to deserve this. And I mean, just think of the nations. Do they regard God? How are they going to be at peace with him? That doesn't just happen. It's hard enough for his chosen people. 
So how is all this going to happen? I, I think that's why the, this last verse in Zechariah 9, 9 through 11 is so significant. Verse 11, which says this. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So the third thing Zechariah is saying here, as we anticipate this coming king, is that he will accomplish peace and global rule, but he's going to do it by emptying himself. And again, you might not have heard a lot of that language in the verse itself, but we'll get there. What I think is happening is we're shifting the matter of peace in these writings, not simply to peace between people and other people, but peace between people and God. And I say that because of the phrase, the blood of my covenant. And that's a little strange and it's going to take a little explaining. So the blood covenant was tied with that same righteous law that I mentioned earlier. Back when God gave the law in Deuteronomy. What happened when an Israelite broke that law? Well, blood was required. Animal sacrifice. And for Israel, they had a high priest for that. The high priest would sacrifice animals in the place of those who broke God's righteous law. And then this would, in a sense, restore peace with God and make his people be seen as righteous, even though their sin had earned them the opposite. And all this is under Israel, by the way. But again, I mean, Israel didn't seem to have peace with God at the time of this writing in Zechariah. I mean, their sin was the exact reason Babylon had conquered them. We read about that in Habakkuk a few months ago. So, so what's up? Do they need like a, do they need like a better priest, maybe? I mean, I thought we were going to have a, a king. Well, that's the secret. I think in all of this, we start to learn that the coming king is going to be both because peace is about peace with God. Zechariah had other visions in in chapter 3 and 6. And what they did is they alluded to Israel's priesthood, not just surviving, but being connected to kingship. I'm going to read this this verse from Zechariah 6.13. And there shall be a priest... On his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. There's a lot in that vision I don't really have time to unpack, but I just want to say this. This changes how we're thinking about the word peace and how peace goes to the nations. What this short passage tells us about Israel is that what they don't need is the conquering blood of a military king. That's not what they need right now. What they need and what the world needs, if there's going to be peace with God, is they need the sacrificial blood of a priest. What's the result? Well, I think this truly righteous king coming is somehow going to make a priestly sacrifice, keep the covenant of blood, And this will somehow not only lead to peace with God, but the whole world is going to be in on it. That's got to be quite a sacrifice, huh? 
Now, I know if you've come to church your whole life, you probably see what I'm getting at. (laughs) But for Israel, that didn't seem to happen. At least not right away. Hundreds of years came and went, and they got passed around under the rule of evil king after evil king. For them, no new king and no new nation. And finally, 500 years later, under Roman rule, a man named Jesus comes, and word gets around, especially when he makes his grand entrance on what we call Palm Sunday. I'm going to read that that account and look for the cross-reference. And I'm not really going to be like preaching through every verse in this last part. I just want you to make the connection to Zechariah because it's quoted here. So here's Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now when they, that's Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall see the Lord, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on him their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Hopefully all that changes that that account a little bit more in your minds. Because what's happening here is the crowd gets it. I think when they say son of David, they make the Solomon connection that we did earlier. But even if that isn't true, when you read this passage in light of Zechariah 9, what Jesus is doing here deliberately is he is announcing, I am that king. I am that priest, you might even say. God is going to come down and be with his people. And that kingdom will reach the ends of the earth. So, what did people think about that? Well, to be fair, most of them couldn't really get easy access to the scriptures. So they might not have really understood all of in Zechariah 9. They'd have to find the religious leaders for that. They knew those verses. But you see, those leaders didn't like Jesus very much so far. (laughs) In fact, Jesus, all throughout the gospel accounts, would poke at these religious leaders and draw out time and time again this. He would say to them, you aren't really 
righteous. You aren't keeping the law. (laughs) You neglect the weightier matters of the law. And ironically, this drove them to take this new king and to have him killed. You might even say that what they did was they tried to sacrifice him on the altar of their own worship. It didn't work for them. In fact, the death of this righteous king, when he was killed, that actually accomplished God's mission. Jesus perfectly kept God's law. And his own people didn't see it, I think, because they didn't know who God was. And it was ironic that man's greatest failure here in the book of Matthew showed just how far God himself was willing to go to make peace with his people. He alone kept the whole law and then he died to save the lawless. God's kingdom was built on the blood of Jesus. So Jesus empties himself and... And then what? What happened? Well, we know from other accounts that he was resurrected. That God accepted his, his uh, sacrifice. And that death was reversed. And then this, through eyewitness account after eyewitness account, this opened up the opportunity for people from all nations to be a part of this kingdom. I mean, even a quick skim of the book of Acts shows you that that kingdom grew. And even a quick skim around this room shows me that it reached the ends of the earth. God's kingdom has been built on the blood of Jesus and it continues to be built. So how would the original reader apply this? Well, I'm going to answer this for the reader in the time of the book of Matthew. I think that they would consider this king, this priest, who offered himself to die and rose again and commissioned his followers to go offer this peace with God to the nations. I think they would have done that. (laughs) In short, their concept of global peace and kingdom expansion, it would have completely realigned. It's not about the sword. It's not about killing. It's about dying. In other words, the way the world peace is achieved It's not by God's people pretending that they're self-righteous and spilling the blood of others as sacrifice. No, they're the sacrifice. And you know that because you looked at Jesus, who alone was righteous. And you consider his righteous blood and the peace with God that brings... That's what matters. That's the peace that propels you forward. 
So then you go and you, like Jesus, offer yourself in a lesser way, perhaps, as a sort of peace offering to the nations. You empty yourself so that they might be filled with the peace of the gospel. You don't kill them so you live. You die in order that they might live. So how does this apply to us? Well, for the Christian, God's kingdom grows from the emptying of his people. So friends, let me ask you, are you glad to be emptied? How do you feel about that? Now, I'm worried that what you heard is, you know, you know, if you're tired. It's not what I meant. I didn't say tired, I said emptied. Because we can get tired doing some pretty messed up stuff, can't we? I mean being emptied so that others might be filled with the gospel. How do you feel about doing that? I'm talking going to hard places. I'm talking giving up your convenience and your energy and your money and maybe even your health. I mean, for our family, that's our plan in North Africa if the Lord sends us. Now, for others here, that might mean something as painful as going to hard places right here. It could be as simple as that friend or that family member or that neighbor that the Lord has laid on your heart and you just don't want to do it because you're just afraid of what they might think. What helps you? You're driven outward in peace because of the peace that Jesus gave you with his own death. I mean, do you think it was easy for Jesus to die? It's not supposed to be easy. Emptying, I think, comes in, comes in a lot of forms. And that, that right there, that's kind of the, maybe the big one we think of. You know, going to hard places, making for peace. Sometimes it doesn't look like peace, though, and it is. Here's an example. It also might mean in love... Calling out the self-righteous. Poking holes in people who think they are righteous. And just in love showing them you're not. Some of us just have a real hard time confronting other people. Did Jesus do that? Yeah. Was he righteous? Also yes. So... The problem when we do that, though, here's how messed up that is. When we allow people, especially professing Christians, to just kind of warp the gospel, we think what we're doing is giving them grace, but we're not. That's not peace. I'm not saying people are going to be perfect and we're going to call them out on every last thing. But if people are making gross misinterpretations of the Bible... It is our obligation to say something. I mean, think about it. 
from your own perspective. Look in the mirror if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian or you've grown or you've grown as one like at all, it's because somebody could have taken the safe route with you, but they didn't. They could have avoided telling you that you need to repent and trust in the blood of Jesus. They could have held back, but they didn't. Kids, if you've got Christian parents, trust me, it is way easier to be a non-Christian parent and just let them run loose. Who cares? It's the very fact when we look in the mirror at our own lives and we think of how much people have avoided the safe route and loved us so much by showing us the gospel. We look to that, we look at Jesus, that pushes us outward. People have loved us, people have loved us enough to die a little bit so that we could live. And so we do the same. Now, one other thing for the, the Christian here I want to point out is we don't want to just let other people take those hard steps for us and call us out. Some of the most humbling times in my life have been asking my children if they really think daddy is patient and then making it as possible as I can for them to answer honestly. And then when, I, when they answer, then I listen. And I don't justify. Or asking my wife if I'm really the person at home that I am up here. You should try it. <laughs> ask your kids. Ask your wives. Ask your roommates. Spouses. And then when you do that and the sting of sin is revealed, we trust the blood of Jesus. And then we go and we build his kingdom. And if you don't do that, do you know what's going to inevitably happen? You're going to slowly callous. You're going to take less advice from people. And then you're going to eventually ignore the blood of Jesus. And you're going to spill the blood of other people instead. Maybe not literally. But you will be building the wrong kingdom. You will waste your life emptying other people just to try and fill yourself. And that will go about as well as the people who tried to kill Jesus. One more application for those of you who are not sure if you're a Christian. I hope this walkthrough of Old Testament history, at least a little bit, has helped to persuade you that Jesus is who he said he was. And that as you see him more clearly, you find that there's room at the table for you. So your application is know that Christianity is really a call to die for the growth of God's kingdom. 
You might have seen false versions of Christianity around here. God wants to make you rich or comfortable. I assure you, he does not. So for you, when you see people and you see even political agendas that will gladly kill for God, but they don't really talk about dying for him, you should know that something is very wrong. And when you see professing Christians consumed with their own prosperity and their own glory and not sharing the gospel, you should know that something is very, very wrong. But if you simply call them hypocrites and then you think of yourself as righteous, you should also know that something is very, very wrong. I mean, look at God's law. Pick one. How are you doing? Pick any commandment and know that righteousness is something reserved for Jesus that he offers to us. The peace you need is not simply with people. It's with God. It's with this God. And only Jesus, by his blood, can give you that. And if you trust his death, his righteousness goes to you. And then you can be sent on a mission of peace to the world. No matter who you are or where you live, you, yes you, can help build God's kingdom. Let me pray for us. God, when I think about your law, I love making it so that it looks like I followed it. I love trying to get by on loopholes and I love trying to get by on letters of the law. Lord, but the heart of the law is that we have no gods before you, that we love you most and we love our neighbor. And a quick look around the world shows us that that is not the way the world works. And so this world needs divine intervention. And the only divine intervention that is satisfactory for restoring peace with God is the blood of Jesus. Nothing else will do. No good work, no good thought, no payment, no sacrifice other than the blood of Jesus. Thank you for that, Lord. I ask that this would strengthen my friends here that are believers to go outward and to, to give of themselves to bring life to a, a dying world. And Lord, I pray for anybody here who's uh, nudged more towards or considering the gospel that they would um, that they would not give up um, on your word that they would dig deep into it and they would ask you to reveal yourself to them amen